the waters receding, all that. And now we've come to the place where Noah and his family are getting off the ark. What kind of thoughts were running through the minds of Noah and his family as they were leaving the ark? What fears did they have? What hopes? What challenges? Did the devastation of the flood cure the evil in man? Did man learn his lesson? Can Noah and his children experience blessing again and fruitfulness? Or will they live in constant fear of another flood? The events that occur after Noah gets off the ark are revealing. They are disturbing. They are shocking. They are comforting. And most of all, they are faith-inspiring. They are designed by God to lead us to Christ. So we're going to go ahead and read the text, Genesis 8.20 through 9.17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your, and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood." And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Noah's actions reveal that he is a man of faith. And what I mean by that is that he does not place his hope of blessing on his own righteousness, but in the righteousness of another. Look at verses 20 and the first part of 21. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and we'll stop right there. This is the first mention of an altar in Scripture. And just so you know, an altar is a place of sacrifice, a place of slaughter. That's what an altar is. And I would say this is shocking. You might say, oh, it's just scripture, just whatever. But I say it's shocking. Think about this. Had Noah and his family not seen enough death? They had went through the death of every living creature. You think about people that have been through a terrible uh, battle, that's the last thing they want to do is see more death. Everywhere they looked, there were signs of death. Did Noah really have to slaughter more animals? Shocking. But Noah was only doing what God had actually intended even before they got on the ark. You see, because these animals that they were sacrificing were clean animals. And God had explicitly brought more clean animals on the ark than unclean animals. So why, after all this death, was there a need for more death? That actually, I believe, is the most important question to ask. If you're going to understand the Noahic covenant, that is the question to ask. Now Moses, and I do believe Moses, because Moses is the author of Genesis through Deuteronomy, Moses tells us that Noah offers burnt offerings. And that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of these offerings. But what are burnt offerings? And what does it mean that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma Well, these are concepts that are not defined in the book of Genesis. They're only defined in the book of Leviticus. 
Noah didn't have the book of Leviticus. So even though he would not explain these concepts for hundreds of, if not thousands of years after Noah, Moses wants his readers to look at Noah's actions and understand them from the book of Leviticus. Are you following that? That's a weird statement that he, you know, Moses is, is with his people in the desert, uh, Mount Sinai, but he, he wants them, as they think about Noah, he wants them to connect it to, with what he's taught them in Leviticus. That's really the only explainable reason why Moses purposely uses the language of Leviticus back in Genesis. Now, I believe that God, as the author of Scripture, wants us to make the connection between Genesis and Leviticus. It's, it's, he, it's, he wants us to read it all. And this actually is a very helpful aspect to your understanding the Bible. God wants you to take a microscope sometime and look at the verses and pick out the words and what does that word mean. But he also wants you to step back and see this particular passage in light of the rest of Scripture. And he wants you to do that back and forth. It's interesting to me, I actually taught through the book of Leviticus several years ago in Sunday school. And so as I was reading Genesis, all this just kind of like popped into my mind. It was so easy. I was like, oh my goodness, this is what's going on. Because we had taken that time, and I just thought to myself, you know, how many of us get to Leviticus and go, let's just skip over that. And I understand it, because it's hard to read Leviticus. It's not easy. But, but God wants us to see all of Scripture and how it fits together with one another. <clears throat> now, in the immediate context, Noah is leaving the ark, and he simply wants to show his thankfulness to God. That's, that's immediate context. That's what's happening. It's like, whew, we made it through the flood. We're on dry ground. We're happy. You know, some people hate flying. That You know, they get the plane lands and it's shaky and stuff. And they just, there's this, they might actually get down on the ground and kiss the ground when they get on it. But maybe they just, that first step on the terra firma, they're just like, thank you. That's good. And there's Noah. He wants to be thankful that they are now out of the flood on dry ground. That's the immediate context. And I think this is a good example to you and I. Okay, So we can use Noah as an example in this. How often do we experience God's goodness to us over and over again, preserving us, helping us, taking care of us, taking us through challenging things, and we don't take time to thank Him? Do you regularly pause from the busyness of your life to give thanks to God? I believe one of the signs of a person that is born of the Spirit is that he is thankful. We live in a society that is very unthankful. Now we've already said that Noah's actions reveal him to be a man of faith... And, and I've already alluded to this, but Noah understands his own sinfulness and need of redemption. This is really important. You might think, well, Mike's being contradictory because last week I said that he was a type of Christ and that his righteousness was even portrayed to us as being perfect. And that's true in the story. He was portrayed as a perfect man. But Noah knows his sinfulness. He knows that he needs another one to save him. And that's why he doesn't approach God except through sacrifice. 
Now think of the number of ways that Noah could have expressed his thankfulness. He didn't have to do it by a sacrifice. Right? When you're thankful to someone, you write a note. Send them a thankful note, right? Um, Maybe we give gifts. Maybe we write or sing songs. You can imagine Noah getting off the ark. He wrote a new song, and he and the Bible does do that at times. When Moses was cut, carried through the Red Sea, they sang a new song. So that's an appropriate way to actually express thankfulness. But not Noah. The first thing he does is begin to slaughter animals on an altar. Now think about this, uh, just I'm jumping, connecting it to Christ just immediately. We'll do more of this as time goes on. But how many times do you consciously approach God through the blood of Christ? When we pray in Jesus' name, that's what we're doing. We're actually saying, I cannot approach a holy God except through Jesus Christ and his shed blood. So that's what's happening. Noah acknowledges in his way that he can only approach a holy God through the sacrificial blood. <clears throat> What's interesting is that everything that we learn in the New Testament about Jesus and who he is as our sacrificial lamb begins back here with Noah. This is where it begins. Might even argue that it goes back even further, but but this is clear. This is the first altar. This is the first sacrifice. This is the first burnt offering that we see in Scripture. Now, what is a burnt offering? And I'm not going to take you all through Leviticus. You know, you have to do that study another time. But I'll give you a few points from Leviticus, kind of the cream of the crop. You know, the, the, it's rising at the top. It's not a case to not study Leviticus. You should do it. But there were five different offerings in Leviticus. The first and the most important, the one upon which all the other offerings are actually uh, based, is the burnt offering. It's the very first one. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But there were, there were, the grain offering was also there where they actually would bring uh, fruit of the, the, the uh, land, and they would bring it. It would be a grain offering. It would be a dedication and thanksgiving, kind of like we do with harvest. Um, there was a peace offering that was given, acknowledging the peace between God and the people, and there would be fellowship, and both, both members would eat some of the food. There were purification offerings, like if you, you'd committed a sin and you knew that and you wanted to be cleansed from that, you'd have a, a sin offering. Sometimes there was a guilt offering, and that offering was more of like restitution. So you would, you would want to pay back the person you sinned against, but you would also want to bring to God some of the the fixing of, the, of it, showing that you uh, truly are sorry and repentant of the sin that you've done. So all these different types of offerings are in Leviticus. But the burnt offering, okay, the burnt offering is all about that the worshiper can come into the presence of God and not be crushed that God will actually receive him into his presence and be happy. So Noah functions as a type of priest. He's the one bringing the offerings, but he's not doing it just for himself, is he? He's representing other people, right? In this case, it's his children, their wives, 
even the animals. And not just those who are living right then, but those of future generations. God has his covenant with Noah. Noah is the one worshiping, but he's doing it on behalf of many other people with him. And the same thing happens during the, the, the priesthood in Israel. The priest would come into the presence of God with the sacrifice, but he would be representing the worshipers as he did it. In the offering, the worshiper would take his hands and he would lay them onto the animal being sacrificed. And this is a symbolic way of joining the worshiper with the sacrifice. They're, they're bound together. Okay, So now the sacrifice actually represents the worshiper. So whatever happens to the sacrifice, it actually is happening to the worshiper as well and to all who he represents. And in the burnt offering, the reason why they call it a burnt offering, it's, it means whole or like holocaust. It's the idea of being completely burned up. So, you know, you might grill out, you know, and you grill out, you cook it, and then you eat it. But this is like burning it up so much that it's nothing but ashes is left. It's just completely consumed. And the idea is that this sacrifice atones for the sins of the worshipers. Symbolically, in the burning up of the entire sacrifice, it is, the, it is given to God, and it's him symbolically eating the offering. He's taking it in. He's consuming it. And that is why as the smoke wafts up to him, God responds that he is pleased. It is a pleasing aroma. And this is the goal of the sacrifice. Because you could imagine if the sacrifice wasn't good enough, God would not be pleased. Boom, worshiper kicked out of God's presence or worse, judged Noah is approaching God by means of an atoning sacrifice. And God is pleased that Noah is not trusting in his own righteousness, but rather is seeking to enter his presence only through an atoning sacrifice. Can you imagine? Hey, God, you, you didn't bring the flood on me. I ought to be able to just come right on into your presence. He says, no, 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 no. You come through the blood of Christ. By the way, as a Christian... You don't get into your 70s, 80s and think, oh, I no longer need the blood of Christ. You need the blood of Christ to enter God's presence, actually throughout all eternity, even after you're righteous in heaven, but you certainly need it in this life. <clears throat> now we know from the rest of Scripture that the blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient. Only the blood of Christ is sufficient. But by these sacrifices, God is helping us to understand what it is that Christ has done for you. And notice in this text that it is in response to the burnt offerings that God makes promises of blessing. That is so important in this passage. You see, the righteous anger of the flood was not 
it was not enough. Well, let me put it, state it this way. The flood was not enough to consume the righteous anger of God. You realize it would never end. The righteous wrath of God would just keep on consuming if there was not something that was sufficient to stop it. And that sufficiency was nothing else but the burnt sacrifice. And what do you think God was actually thinking of? The blood of bulls and goats or the blood of his son when he stopped the wrath of the flood? It's interesting in verse 21, he says, the Lord said in his heart. Like it's like God is just up there and he's just thinking about it and he says, oh, I'm so happy. He's thinking about Christ. Immediately after God gives these promises in verses 21 and 22, and he's, he's talking about this, he, he says, these promises have nothing to do with the righteousness of man. Look at that. I will never again curse the ground because of man, because man learned his lesson. No, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The flood, think of the wrath of the flood, did nothing to eradicate and cure the evil dominating man's heart. And God knows it. So in other words, there, it was, you could have gone 10 years after the flood and it would have been just as worthy of another flood. And the only reason that God doesn't bring another flood is because of this burnt offering of which he says, oh, I smell the pleasing aroma and I'm not going to bring this flood. You guys understand God's righteous anger doesn't just end. It's like, oh, he got that out. You know, like we get mad at our kids and we fly up in a big rat of anger and then we're like, oh. and the kids are going, man, I'm glad dad's not over. He's over that. You know, that's not the way God works. Unless there's something to truly pacify his anger, it will just continue against sin. But here's the thing. God doesn't want to just destroy us all. Isn't that amazing? He did, we deserve it. And this is the mystery that's going on. It's beginning in Genesis. On the one hand, everyone knows that he should just crush us all. And on the other hand, God is making these wonderful promises of blessing. How's that work, God? Well, it doesn't actually get fixed in our minds until you see Jesus. That's where God's mercy and his wrath come together. God has to overcome, he has to overcome the evil of our hearts. What is interesting is that the Noahic covenant doesn't even mention what this is. It doesn't even mention the, the promises that are up here. Right? You see these promises up here. I will give you a new heart. Put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. That's not even mentioned in the Noahic Covenant. But God is thinking about that. Because when God says to Noah, I will bless you, he has to deal with the sinfulness of a heart. 
The Noahic covenant doesn't unfold all the details of the new covenant in Christ, but it does pronounce this blessing upon Noah and his sons. He does go back and he says to him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This shows us how much God does uh, uh, command this blessing upon him because when someone has truly failed, it is very easy for the one who has been failed against, God, to no longer give responsibility back to that person again. But God goes right back to them says, be fruitful and fill the earth. God is pouring out blessing upon his people. Rather than God's original purpose being lost because of sin, God reaffirms the very same purpose for his covenant people. And isn't that not true in the New Testament? Jesus does the same thing. If you come to me, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. It is to my Father's glory that you bear fruit. The Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. What do you think that is? Fill the earth with my disciples. God is making Noah and his sons who he originally made them to be. Of course, it is a command to bear children and to understand that children are a blessing and not a curse. But I want us to see both that the bearing of children physically and the making of disciples spiritually are connected in this. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, God just doesn't make these wonderful promises of blessing and just leaves it. God also gets into the nitty-gritty of the life that they're in, right? He knows that they are living in a very fallen and dangerous world. And so what does he do? He puts a sense of fear in the animals towards man. It's a good thing. Now, it's not saying that every animal is afraid of us, but it is saying that, that God is doing something to temper the dangerousness of the world in which they live. There's not many humans on the face of the earth, and they could have very much easily be crushed by the animals that were coming against them, but no, God tempers that because he knows they're living in a harsh world. <clears throat> also, in verse 3, God allows man to eat animals. Again, this is a recognition that the post-world, uh, post-flood world, world is very harsh. And God allows us to, to be sustained by animals after the flood. And I won't go into this, but there's also a hint of Christ. They actually have to eat animals in the sacrifices, which leads them to Christ as well. So there's a sense that God is pushing people to understand Christ. But verse 4, you shouldn't eat the blood. And the reason why you shouldn't eat the blood is because there's a tendency, it's a pagan tendency, it's a superstitious tendency, that you could actually get the life out of someone else for yourself. And God doesn't want people to go other places. 
You know the only blood that God wants you to drink? Not physically, but spiritually. We do it in communion. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink it. He doesn't want you trying to steal life from other people like a vampire. He wants you to come to Jesus. And so he makes this command. You're not trying to to go other places to find life. Come to me. I'm the one that you need. Don't try to take it from other people or other animals. He also speaks of, of the importance of life because he says that when somebody takes another life, that their life should be taken. That's the, the, the foundation of what we have capital punishment. But I just want to stress that he doesn't view capital punishment as the fixing of the human heart. Because if the flood didn't fix our hearts, capital punishment's not going to fix our hearts. The only thing that will change the heart of anybody is the grace of God. Look in verse 7. Be fruitful and multiply and team on the earth and multiply it. The word for team is the same word that they used to put, that was previously on the, uh, the sea creatures that they would be teeming. You think of how full the oceans are with animals. And God says he wants the world to team with people. And I know in our day, this is a kind of a side note, but I'm telling you this is so helpful why the scriptures keep us from going down bad roads. You can look at cities and say that they're overpopulated. But even with these clusters of overpopulation, I would say that this world is not anywhere close to being filled to capacity. There are huge open spaces that remain on our planet. It will take hard work and ingenuity to fill those places, make them habitable. It was just this past weekend up in the mountains at someone's house, and I thought to myself, Man, 50 or 100 years ago, no one could live in these mountains. And now they're making it inhabitable for people to go and live. We live in a big world. Do not let this world tell you that the problem of the world is overpopulation. God has not reversed his command and said, no longer be fruitful and multiply. In verses 8 through 11, we see the the, uh, formal covenantal principles and just a few things that are so helpful to us to start building on. A covenant is not a contract. It's a bonding relationship. God is entering a formal bond with Noah, and there are rules that govern this relationship. They are not just with individuals. God never in Scripture makes a covenant just with an individual. Not any of his saving covenants. I'm not saying he never makes a promise to an individual. But these covenantal relationships are always with the covenant head and all who are included in them. Sometimes the covenant will, will focus on promises, and that's what's focused in the Noahic covenant. Other times the covenant will focus on obligations and duties. That's like the Mosaic covenant and the law. But here we are in the Mosaic, I mean the Noahic covenant. And this is an enduring covenant through all time. And God says, I will never, ever destroy this world completely again. And he does it in spite of the sinfulness of man. 
He doesn't say, if you guys just listen to me and do better, I won't destroy the earth. Or, you know, you might destroy it yourself. He says, no, there will not be a destruction of this world until I return. And then God attaches a sign to the covenant. Of course, God is teaching us what signs are, and signs are just there to help you remember the covenant. Circumcision was a sign in the Old Testament. The Sabbath was a sign. New Testament, baptism is a sign. But here it is a rainbow. And God just wants you to, every time you see a rainbow, remember his covenant promises to Noah. I know in the text it says that it is a reminder to God as well that God sees the rainbow and he remembers the sacrifice. I would say that God is remembering the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross. But it's for us. And I think this Noahic covenant has something to say about our current fascination with thinking we're going to destroy the planet. As human beings, we do have the ability to harm the world in which we live. I grew up in a strip mining area where many pieces of land were ruined for many t- a long time. I can also remember when we were afraid of destroying every tree so that there would be no trees left. Somehow we developed plastic as a solution, right? And now what's our problem? Too much plastic. The idea is this. We have a responsibility to try to care for this planet, to not, to not just destroy things. We have a responsibility to do this. But as long as we don't prioritize the saving of the planet over immediate human life, and I think far too many people are willing to sacrifice human life now, in the name of saving the planet. We live in a very non-ideal world. Nuclear power plants are not pretty. My son lives right next to one, works in it. But they make a lot of energy. I may like green grass better than I like asphalt. But I'm glad to drive on roads. When someone tells me that the human behavior is going to result in an apocalypse and the destruction of all life on the planet, be skeptical. God controls this world. I'm not saying that that human beings can't wreck untold damage. I've seen that in wars and all kinds of nuclear disasters and different things. But don't let these, these fears drive you. God has made a promise to Noah and it is still in effect to this day. We shouldn't be flippant or careless about the world in which we live in, but we should guard against doomsday predictions. Now, in Isaiah 54, Too often the Noahic covenant 
has been used simply as a common grace covenant. That means it's given to believers and unbelievers alike. And it is to believers and unbelievers alike. It's to all people on the earth. It's the whole earth. But I also think that we read in Isaiah 54, and I recommend you to go back there again. When God is trying to explain the new covenant promises of salvation, he directs us back to Noah. And so there must be in the Noahic covenant the symbol of the mercy of God in Christ and that God wants to bring mercy upon this earth. And yes, all who are not in Christ will be judged. That's true. But this covenant of peace, God will have compassion on his people. So let's close this. Why has the world not come to an end? Because God's still smelling the pleasing aroma of Jesus Christ. And because he's smelling that aroma, he is still changing souls. Now there will come a day when God is done. All the elect have come in, and that's it, and it's done, and judgment will come. But this world will not end until God has finished saving all of his elect. The world is an evil place, but God still rules. Do not give in to a spirit of fear and always focus on the problems around you. Remember the rainbow. And remember this as well. Wrath and judgment. I know we say, oh God, judge the world. Bring, you know, fine, God will do that. He did it in Noah's flood. But remember that only God's mercy changes human hearts. The wrath of God has never changed a heart. It is only the mercy of God. Jesus Christ is the only cure for sin. Be thankful for him. And tell a world... You, it's in your relationships with the people around you, the other fellow students, the people in your workplace, the people you interact with. Tell them that Jesus Christ has died for their sins. That there is a burnt offering. Someone has been consumed so that they can be right with God. Tell them they need to know. Amen.